Before I get to the um, ultimate facts of Genesis chapter 3 that I want us to look at this morning relative to our enemy, I want to say something about this account of Scripture with Satan taking on the form of a serpent, talking with Eve. You know, there are many who think of this as a parable. A parable is a story meant to illustrate a point, but it's not a true story. It's not a an actual event. It's just a allegorical story with meaning behind it. And a parable has, um, they're used in scriptures. They, they are significant. And the meaning behind a parable is always, you know, it never changes. It's, it is true. It's applicable. But what I want us to understand this morning is that there is no um, reason in Genesis to assume that this is a parable. It's not written as a parable. It's written as a real event in history. And I, I hope that I, I want to shine a little light on what most likely was happening here. And maybe answer some questions you've never had anybody answer for you before about, you know, this event. Um, I will argue it's very, very different than the pictures that we see. You've seen the picture of, you know, Eve with the, the apple, and you've got this mean, scary-looking snake up in a tree that, you know, the type that looks like it's going to bite you and kill you. And, and, and we're, we, we just have a hard time processing in our mind how that could have ever been. I will argue that wasn't what it was like. And first of all, I think it's strange that we as people would believe that it's hard to even fathom that, it, you know, she would talk with an animal. Today, I know people who have conversations with their birds. We've all seen somebody have a conversation with a bird. You can teach birds to talk. We have domesticated animals, like the idea that man can communicate with animals is not new. Why we would have such a hard time with this, I think it's because we have the picture of a little gardener snake that can't do anything but hiss. And we think, well, there's, there's, this just doesn't make sense. A couple of things that must be noted. Number one, the creation was different before the fall. The idea that we have a great understanding of what man's relationship was with animals before sin entered, we don't know. We have no idea what it actually looked like. Number two, it is totally probable that what when we think of serpent, that whatever Eve was speaking with did not look like the snake at all that we think of. We know that one of the things that was part of the curse, and I will deal with this this morning, is that it was cursed to its belly, which insinuates it used to not get around that way. There are some who believe that these reptiles even had wings, which I thought was humorous since people do talk to their birds. Next, when Satan was looking for a creature to inhabit, he chose the serpent. That's important to note. Now, first of all, Satan 
is a spirit being. And you, you know, a spirit being uh, needs this form in order to work inside this earth realm. And one of the things that we see repeatedly in Scripture is the truth that demons can indwell physical people. We even see them indwelling pigs in the New Testament. And so it's not, it's not strange that a, you know, a demon would possess an earthly body, including that of an animal. And when Satan was looking for this earthly body to inhabit, he chose the serpent. And it tells us this about the serpent, that it was subtle. And so the idea that it was this clear, evil-looking, mean snake up in a tree, and that's just not, that's where our minds go, partly because we've seen the picture, and partly because we read the word serpent, and that's where our minds go. But that wasn't what was actually happening here. We don't know exactly which reptile Satan inhabited, and we know nothing about what relationship between really man and animal looked like before the fall. But my sincere belief is this, this is a literal point in history. And for those that have a difficult time for that, with that, I don't actually understand, like, they'll say, well, that doesn't seem rational. It doesn't seem rational to me that you would believe that God could create the heavens and the earth and that Jesus could walk on water and he could command water itself to, like, just cease from waves moving, that he could heal the sick, raise the dead, do all the things that he did, and that we see there is this, this realm that um, we are in league with that we can't see that is supernatural. We would believe that. We have proof of, of Jesus' life, and we wouldn't believe this is possible. That doesn't sound rational to me. The book of Jonah, I'm going to give you one example, and I'm going to get back to my text. The book of Jonah, at one point in time, was the single most disputed book in all of the Bible. And it is still a highly disputed book today, but one time it was the undisputed, most disputed book of the Bible. People said there's no possible way that happened. There's no way God, you know, the God sent a whale to swallow a man. He lived in there for three days, came out. That's just a parable. It's just a fable. And as time progressed, and we became more scientific, and we became more... Um, you know, educated, uh, the argument advanced. Now, hold on a second. When you read this book, it says that Jonah was sent to a city called Nineveh, and this city was a massive city, a city that was in a major area of the world, and we have no record of it. What's the likelihood that a city so large, something that would be similar to the U.S. today of like Los Angeles or Houston or Miami, what's the chance that a city that was so large that God sent this prophet to go to, that we have no evidence that it exists at all? They said, that's impossible. This whole thing is a fraud. There's no historical records of Nineveh. It's just a story. And then in 1857, they discovered Nineveh. The one book in the entire world that told us Nineveh was a place, Jonah. Now you're not going to believe the rest of it? 
You can trust this, brothers and sisters. You can trust this. And this morning as we study the serpent, understand that we can trust what this book tells us about the serpent. I want to share with you six things that show us his defeat, all in these simple two verses in Genesis chapter 3. Let me get there. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be for the rest of the day. Number one, notice that the very form that Satan used became his curse. In Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent. Satan decides the serpent is the best of his options. The serpent, this reptile, is the the way that he's going to go. And God says, I'm going to curse you to this form. And not only am I going to curse you to this form, I'm going to add to it. Now you will go on your belly all the days of your life. It was under the form of the serpent that he deceived Eve. And it was under the form of the serpent that he was condemned. It's important for us to understand that because Satan is still a serpent today. God's curse abides on him forever. And the serpent was most subtle, and so is Satan, even to this day. He is subtle and cunning. You think you understand the ways of Satan? Those of us that have maybe been serving the Lord for some length of time, we think we know all of his ways, we think we know all of his schemes. The reality is this, you've got to keep your guard up. He is subtle. One of the things about a snake is it has a way of kind of getting into places that is simply shouldn't be able to get to. The time, you know, it can twist around and get into places that no other creature can. And it's normally really quiet. Almost every other creature, when it's trying to work its way into somewhere, you hear it. But a snake is almost entirely silent. You just turn, and there the thing is. And I'm telling you something, folks, so it is with our enemy. He is quiet. He is subtle. It's important you understand that about the way that Satan attacks. Most of the time, he's not going to bull rush you. Most of the time, he's not going to show up right with horns and announce his coming. He comes in subtly. He comes in friendly. He comes in quietly. And before you know it, you've got a snake in the garden. His ways are not easily understood or found out. Paul said that we are not ignorant of his schemes. But that doesn't mean we know exactly which scheme he's going to use next. For me, it shines light on Jesus when he taught his disciples how to pray. One of the things that he told them was this. Pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is something that daily we need to be praying. God, give me wisdom. Do not let me be led into temptation. Deliver me from evil. In Revelation, John calls him the old serpent, called the devil and Satan which deceives the whole world. Consider that he is wiser than the wisest. The Bible says Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth. God's king, king of Israel, the wisest that there ever was. And you look at how great was Solomon's fall. He's stronger than the strongest. Never was there a man like Samson. And look how greatly he was overthrown by this subtle enemy. 
who found a way to creep in carefully, quietly, and pervasively. He knows how to even take a man like David, a man after God's own heart, and find a way to not only get him entangled in sin, but lead him to a place where he murders his own friend. Satan is pervasive. Now, this is his method. I want you to understand something. I'm not building up Satan this morning. You've got to understand all these points are about the fact that he's a defeated foe. But this is how he was cursed to have to work. And it does us well to understand it is how our enemy works. He is a snake. He finds himself in a places that doesn't make any sense at times. I don't know about you, but I find that old serpent trying to creep into my prayer life. One of the most sacred and holy places that I have on the planet Earth when it's just me and just God, and I'm trying to be as spiritual of a man as I can be, and there I am, and it seems like that old devil's creeping in. He's making doubt come through. Would you, would you believe? I know better. I really do. I don't even like saying this out loud from the pulpit, but sometimes I'm too transparent. Would you believe that sometimes in my life I'm even like, man, is God hearing me? Would you believe at times that the craziest little thoughts creep up like, is all of it true? Would you believe that? i got to take those thoughts captive in my life. Would you believe the wildest thing is that it seems like sometimes those stinking thoughts come up when I'm in my prayer closet. Of all places when it should seem like it's just me and God and I'm in that place, it's like my mind is being ravaged and thoughts are coming and it's like get that serpent out of here. Point being this morning, folks, is that our enemy is a formidable foe, but he is a defeated foe, and he is a snake, poisonous snake. You know, there's nothing noble about a snake. There's nothing brave about a snake. There's nothing true about the idea of a serpent. They are just treated as nasty creatures. It's interesting that Satan was among the greatest of all the angels. He was the firstborn of the morning. And when he fell, now he slithers as a serpent on his belly. Keep before your minds and your hearts the idea of a serpent. Understand that's how your enemy comes at you. He is a snake. Number two, not only is he a serpent, but note, He is a cursed creature. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you. The one who we contend with is cursed. And I hope that for, for you true sons and daughters of God, that's a sense of encouragement to you. Your enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you and your family, know something, he's a cursed foe. Our God has already cursed him. It's not that he will be cursed. He's cursed, folks. Since Genesis 3.14, right here, he is doubly cursed. He'd already been cast out of heaven, and here God pronounces a curse upon him again. Our enemy is cursed. And God's sons and daughters, we're blessed. God's blessed his people, but he has cursed our enemy. The curse of God ultimately obliterates everything and everyone that his curse has been cast upon. 
The next time you find yourself fighting with Satan, it would do you good just to hurl that spear at him. You're a cursed foe. I've shared this story before here. Sometimes it unnerves people, but it's a true story. I was here one night and um, trying to pray by myself many years ago. And uh, there was just, as, as I was here, it was dark, probably 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. There was just a very real sense of evil. And, uh, man, it, it started to manifest itself in physical ways. Like, I heard the door open and slam. Um, there are loud doors at the front. And then I heard feet run down those stairs. And I'm like, I'm thinking, well, some kids from the skate park or something, maybe, you know, just being silly. And uh, short story, I go down. I can't find anybody. The door's locked. There's not any way anybody could have come in. And uh, it just, there was nobody anywhere. I checked all the closet. I try to come back and get, get in a place of prayer, and it's like my mind's not there. Um, one of the doors out here to the, the restrooms opened and shut when I was in the foyer coming back up, and I, you know, I'm like, somebody's in this, and I pushed that door open. There's nobody in there. It was creepy. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to leave. That's what I wanted to do. I don't like being around that type of stuff more than anybody else, and this is especially much younger in my years. I have a lot more experience um, dealing with the demonic realm than I did at that time. And I just wanted to leave. I'm like, I just want to get out of here. Start justifying things to myself. Like, God can hear me anywhere, right? Why do I got to pray here at the church? But really, really what I want to do is just get out of there. And then I was conflicted. I'm like, no, because then he wins. And so I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray. And I came down and I knelt. You know what I did? I pretended I was praying because I couldn't pray a lick. All I was thinking was, I want out of here. How long am I going to pretend I'm praying? And uh, there was this feeling, and I can't tell you because, you know, you know what it's like when you feel like there's something creeping behind your back. You know, you don't have eyes. Like I felt it. It's like, it's like I could feel things breathing on the back of my neck. And, and, and you know what came over me was this, very similar to this, when Satan is, is, is at your neck, you remember, you remind him that he is a cursed and defeated foe. And, I, I, and since, since I couldn't pray at that moment to God, I decided I'd just talk out loud to whatever was in this place. And I, and I set up, and this is what I said, what's it like to be so stinking weak? You can't do anything but sit there and watch me worship. I said that out loud. And a spirit of just, just calm came over me, and I just began praising God for the blood of Jesus, thanking God for his protection over his sons, thanking God for saving a wretch like me. And I'm telling you, it was like 20 seconds. It wasn't minutes. It didn't take 10. It was like 20 seconds. I just felt that evil presence just flee from the place, and it was like I was there. Tell you something, folks. Our enemy's cursed. Our enemy is cursed, and he truly is defeated. But he don't want you to know that. He don't want me to know that. The devil is a liar. He is cursed, and so is all of sin that he has brought into this world. And that's an important point to understand, folks, is that sin is cursed as well. You do not want to play with sin. I get it that we as God's people are not sinless. There was only one sinless man. But truly, God's people should abhor sin. And when sin creeps into our lives, it should bring a sense of remorse that drives us to want to turn from it and get it out of our lives. The last thing that we should ever want to do as someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus is juggle sin. 
it's cursed. And when you touch the curse, it spreads like poison. All that Satan is and all that he's brought into this world is cursed. Note that the curse was also in reference to us, right? Since he had did this thing to the woman, the curse was in reference to mankind. And it's interesting that our fall brought him no gain. What, what he thought would bring him gain, what he thought would work to his benefit, ultimately did nothing but bring about more divine disappointment. This morning, the fact is that Satan and all that is of him, sin, is under the curse, and that should give us a spirit of, uh, uh, it should strengthen our hearts is the word I'm looking for. To know that Satan is under the curse. Verse 14, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Notice the next portion of this curse. On your belly you shall go. Consider that this part of the curse was that the serpent would now move on his belly. This is our um, text that tells us that we don't even really know what form the serpent was before this. That the way that it would move would change. What a humiliating way to move. And I think that about our enemy. What a humiliating way that he has to advance his kingdom. Like a little weak serpent. He can't show up like a man and look us in the eyes and just say, here's what I'm going to do. He has to instead lie his way through it, connive his way through it work himself through doors and find ways to sneak in and, and try to influence through deceit. That's the way that Satan works, is deceit and fear. God's kingdom is the exact opposite, truth and love. But this is the way that Satan works. It's the way he's always had to work. It's just through being a little snake. He slithers his way in. He doesn't want you to know that he's there. He tries to inject a little poison here, a little poison there. The reality is this is the way his seed also operates. We see it. We see it in politics. Uh, we see it in programs. We see it in people. In fact, it's a term that we often use to reference people that are, you know, clear swindlers. We call them snakes. But it is the same way. And one of the things I was thinking this week was, and I was a little bit overwhelmed by it, as I thought about the reality of, of how invasive Satan can be to the ignorant. And we see that he works himself into so many places, and he's a liar. He'll never stand like a man and tell you the truth. We look at, one of, the, one of the places this week that I was truly a little bit uh, overwhelmed by, and I haven't been overwhelmed by it, honestly, ever until this week, uh, overwhelms a good word. I looked at the general overtaking of the public school system. And what was overwhelming is I, as I was looking at the way our enemy works and how he's just a creepy little snake, it's so invasive. The part that was overwhelming was like, I don't know that there's a whole lot that can be done about it. Maybe there is. 
But the part that was more overwhelming was the reality of how it infects our children. That was the part that was heartbreaking to me. You know, uh, these seeds of Satan, they didn't just stand up with a microphone and say, we believe that your children belong to us. You as parents have no right to teach them what is true and what is not. We believe your children are property of the government. Instead, secretly and quietly over the last 30 years, there's just been this subtle indoctrination of our colleges, and now teachers are coming in that have this mindset that the best way to teach these kids is to secretly do it and to not let parents know what's being taught and to push certain narratives but make sure the kids don't take any of that stuff home. It all stays in the class. And we have words like safe space, where safe space really means you can say what you want here, do what you want, and we'll keep it a secret from your parents. It's, it's demonic. It's evil, a lot that's going on. And it happens subtly. That's the way the enemy works. It's the way his seed works. They lie, they squirm, because if they're honest about their dealings, everybody would turn away and say, hey, you don't even need to be a Christian to say this is nonsense. This week, as I thought about it, um, I, I was... I was a little bit overwhelmed, not saddened, but just overwhelmed at the reality of the world that we're living in. And there were a couple of things that I settled in my heart. Two very specific things. Number one, I've been more determined at this stage of my life than I ever have been to protect the flock that God has given me. And to preach what is true, whether anybody likes it or not. To call evil, evil. To call sin, sin. To, to declare the truth that God is who God says he is. His word is his word. It must be believed and it must be obeyed. And as I thought about that, I thought about this truth. It's actually a, it's a, um, it's a peaceful truth to me. We're tiny. We will always be tiny. About 400 people through two services on a Sunday morning. I don't care if we triple in size. There's 8 billion people on the face of this earth. Don't you ever forget it. We are even but a grain of sand in the big scale of everything. But the job God's given me is to care for this tiny flock and to keep us pure and to preach holiness and righteousness. And I am as determined to do it as I've ever been before. And number two, to win the lost. I know that we cannot change the whole world. But I, was, I had, I had a, 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 a renewed sense of passion for helping people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ this week. Partly because I thought, well, there's so many and it's so vast. Like, what can we do? What can we do? The, the, the system itself has been hijacked slowly over years, and we are literally, the, the design of the American culture in and of itself that 95% of people have no option but to be part of. It leads to all this demonic, evil, just nonsense. And I was reminded of a story years ago that God used to 
help me focus on my mission. Some of you know that I've got a starfish on my desk and a starfish on my dresser at my house that I walk past, I don't know, 10, 15 times every day of my life. It's in a location that I have to see it every, every day. I never go a day in my life without seeing a starfish. And I got those because of a story that I heard that impacted me deeply. It was a story of a young boy that was on a, um, a beach, and the tide had gone down, and there was like 10,000 starfish that were dying uh, as the sun was coming up. And he's out there trying to throw them all in the water and save all these starfish. And this older gentleman's walking by, and he sees the young man and says, you know, what are you doing there, son? And he says, I'm saving these starfish. And that older gentleman said, son, there's, there's thousands of these things on this beach, and it's going to get hot quick. There's, you, there's no way you can save them. And that young man, that boy, he reached down and grabbed one, picked it up, looked at the man, threw it in the water, and said, save that one. And he reached down and grabbed another one and threw that one in the water and said, save that one. Reached down, grabbed another one, threw it in the water and said, I saved that one. That's the mindset we've got to have, folks. You might not be able to save them all. But we have got to live our lives to save as many as we can. There is an enemy that is subtle like a snake, but he is cursed. Do not forget that. Number three, notice not only is he cursed, but that his curse stands now and forever. We see the utter defeat of Satan as early as Genesis chapter 3. In verse 14, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice the perpetual shame. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Satan is to live a defeated life. This is the force of the expression. It's not just that he's going to eat dust because he's a snake. The term eating dust is a military term that deals with the complete embarrassment, annihilation of another army. We see it used in that context in Psalm 72 verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. All the days of his life, His enemies licked the dust. And what was said of this serpent that all the days of his life he shall lick the dust. It destroys it. He is utterly defeated. Now, I want to share with you something that truly changed my Christian life and my perspective about spiritual warfare. I used to hate spiritual warfare. I used to hate the battle of trying to be holy and trying to serve God and trying to keep evil out of my life, and trying to not sin, I used to hate that battle. And I'll tell you why I hated it. Because there was this constant feeling in my gut that someday I'm not going to win. Someday, I can't do this forever. I can't keep up this fight forever. Someday I'm going to get tired, and I'm going to get exhausted, and and then I, I, I might fail. And it plagued my mind and my heart. And what I wanted, and I wanted it so desperately, 
I prayed for it. I sought God for it. You know what I wanted? I wanted to come down to this altar. And I wanted to pray with a sincere heart. God, make me like you. Change me entirely so that I never struggle against sin. Remove the enemy from my life in such a way that he never comes at me again so that there's no chance of me failing you because, God, I just want to live for you. That's what I wanted. There came a time in my life, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I mean, I'd been pastoring and serving the Lord and was feeling the way I was telling you. 10 or 12 years ago, I can't tell you that God spoke to me. I didn't hear some audible voice. But it was as if God answered my prayer and this question came to me. Joplin, what would be better? Better that God just zapped you, put a hedge around you, and the rest of your life, the enemy could never tempt you, never get to you. And you could just be perfectly holy your whole life. It's this great big victory, one punch, one knockout, he's obliterated. Or would it be better that rather than putting that complete hedge around you, God is with you. And the enemy attacks 50 times a day. But you just punch him in the face 45, 47 out of those 50 times. And every day of your life, you have 47, 50, 60 victories. Which would be better? And I'm telling you, folks, it changed my life the way I began to see spiritual warfare. During that stage of my life, I literally counted the victories. Anyone that's ever counseled with me knows I've walked you through this. I began to count the victories. Out of every time today that my mind was taken, that my mind came after this, this happened in my life, that I, that, I was, that I was enticed to act out in the flesh, what percentage of those times did I win and what percentage of those times did I lose? And I began to realize in my own life, there's work to do, but I'm winning most of them. And I began to think, man, if I can punch Satan in the face 50 times a day, 365 days a year, 10 years a in a row the next 40 years of my life and rather than one ginormous victory where he just can't ever touch me at the end of my life there's this mark 5,675 victories against Satan I think that's a little more humiliating he can lick the dust in my life he can do it over and over and over again he is a defeated foe it is his curse that all the days of his life he will lick the dust I thought about the way that he licked the dust when Jesus was here over and over and over and over again. I thought about him showing up trying to tempt Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 to basically turn against God and take the easy road and Jesus repeatedly just refuses his advances and ultimately sends him off on his way licking the dust. I thought about all the things that Satan did to try to disrupt the disciples, to try to instill fear into their hearts. And then you read the book of Acts, and what you see is that God's plan happened anyways, and the same group of men that he tried to destroy, they end up launching the largest uh, you know, revival in human history and launched the New Testament church. He was licking dust, folks. And I thought about the statement, it is finished. 
This is what this preacher believes with all of my heart. I believe, number one, that Satan physically was somewhere present at the crucifixion. I believe he was there physically. Number two, I believe that it wasn't until the words, it is finished. You look at everything else that Jesus said on the cross. Satan still feels like he's winning. It is his plan, his scheme. He's devised it all together. He's got the high priest of Israel to co-conspire with Rome to kill God's son. It's happening. He's dying. And then the last thing that Jesus says is, with this voice of declaration, it is finished. And I believe with all of my heart that Satan's mind went to Genesis chapter 3.15 and he said, oh no, the plan has been hijacked by God himself. And the very blood that Satan conspired to bring about as the blood was dropping from the cross, it meant my freedom and your freedom. And we see that our God has always been wiser, always stronger, always one step ahead of our enemy. And our enemy is a defeated foe. It is finished. He is cursed, brothers and sisters. Number four. We see this crushing of Satan. God would use Satan's victim to become his conqueror. In Genesis 3.15, note, I will put enmity between you and who? The woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. This word, enmity, it means war. God says from this moment forward, there will be war between you and her seed, mankind. And ultimately, the seed being the son, of, the son of God, Jesus Christ. But Satan thought that he'd gained a friend. He thought he had somebody on his team to help fight against God and to hopefully bring down the Almighty. God said, not only is that not true, now I will put war between you and her. Satan can never know peace. He seeks rest and he finds none. He is a cursed and utterly defeated foe. Understand that though some might be captured, even some pulpits, though it might seem as if the whole church has gone astray, Understand, God will never leave himself without witness. There will always be a true remnant. There will always be a true people of God. The question is this morning, are we of that number? Are you of that number? Satan's throne will always be opposed. The war is to be kept up by God himself. He said, I will put this war between you and the woman. We see the church of God announced in this verse as well. Her seed. Ultimately being Jesus Christ. And now he as the head. Folks. We are the hands. We are the feet. We are the body of Christ. But he is the head. We are of that seed. Number five. Notice this morning the utter failure of Satan's scheme. 
He had a plan. Notice it's complete failure. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a reference to Satan's ultimate demise, which we'll close with in a moment. But notice, you shall bruise his heel. What a weak fight. A fight where one man's head is crushed and the other man's heel, singular, is crushed. It's not even close. What an utter failure of his scheme to take down the Almighty God. I also find it interesting that that which is crushed of the seed of the woman is the heel. I really believe that it's symbolic of the reality that every step that we take on this earth, the first thing that touches is the heel. Every step of your life, when you come up off the ground, the first thing that touches earth is the heel. And I believe it teaches us that the only thing that our enemy has any contact with is that which is earthly in us to start with. But when we walk with God and we walk in the Spirit and we keep our heart and our eyes towards heaven, there's not a thing about our faith that the enemy can do anything about but just sit and watch us praise our God. We see his scheme fails utterly. He could only bruise the heel. I think about Paul speaking of our light affliction. All that we go through is not worthy to be compared with the far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. Finally, this morning, in number six, we do see the complete destruction of Satan. In verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. This word bruise can literally mean crush. In fact, it's not possible to have an actual bruise without crushing something. And when you bruise the head, the entire head, it's the crushing of the entire head. We have here the prediction of his complete and total annihilation. Brothers and sisters, I believe that this happened at the cross. I believe that Satan knows it. It's hard for us at times to understand. We're, we're creatures of time, right? We think in time. We think, well, it didn't happen yet. But God teaches us that our life is but a vapor. That, that's the best word God could use to describe our life, a vapor. You know, it's cold outside, and you breathe, and you can see your, vo- your, your, your breath, and then it just disappears. He says, the totality of your life, everything that you experience from birth to death, in the grand scheme of eternity, it's like a vapor, here and gone. And so, through the eyes and perspective of eternity, folks, what's done is done. I'm telling you, in Genesis chapter 3, it was done. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, it was done. And our enemy knows that he is a defeated foe. He just doesn't want us to know that. He doesn't want us to know that he's defeated. He doesn't want us to know that he's crushed. But he is. And I pray this morning, I really do, that the sons and daughters of God would have a renewed sense of we are the victors, folks. We are. We might be outnumbered. 
We might be the tiniest group there is as far as numbers on the planet. True, blood-bought, born-again Christians that are following Jesus. I don't know if we are or not, but we might be. It doesn't matter. We're on the winning side. Our king is king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God of glory. And concerning this defeated foe under the feet of Jesus, look what Romans 16 verse 20 says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What an awesome thought that God is going to crush Satan under our feet. I'm telling you, we are on the winning side, brothers and sisters. There's coming a new heaven and a new earth where the Bible says dwells righteousness. It's coming. This morning I ask, what side are you on? This morning, to my brothers and sisters, I invite you, I invite you to join me with a renewed sense of Let's keep the people of God holy. Let's pursue righteousness together. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. And let's be more like Him. And concerning all the chaos around us, let's not let our hearts be troubled. Let's let's be reminded their prince is a cursed and defeated foe. And our King crushed His head.